0: Hello and welcome to Mortgage Insider from Barclays, the podcast series that delves into the biggest challenges facing the mortgage broking industry. I'm Tony Rimmer, a business development manager from the northwest,
1: And I'm Clare McPhail, a business development manager in the South East. In this episode, we're going to find out about the outlook for the UK's economy. It's been a rather bumpy ride during the past year with plenty of ups and downs with the pandemic.
0: To find out more, we spoke to Will Hobbs, Chief Investment Officer at Barclays Wealth and Investments.
1: Hello, Will, and thank you for joining us again.
2: Hello, Claire. It's lovely to see you guys again. Yeah, no, a pleasure to be back on. Very privileged. Yes, hi, Will. How are you? Tony, yeah, not too bad. Living the dream, you know. (laughs) Someone else's else's dream, maybe, but yeah, we're trying. It's definitely great to have you back on again, back by popular
0: demand.
1: Most definitely.
0: Uh, and I know when we sort of look back, you, you were our very first guest that we had from series one and definitely resonated with, with lots of our listeners. We've had some great feedback on you know, some, of, some of the things that we discussed and um, it was really good. So, so what's been going on with, with yourself? I hear that um, you, you've picked up and invested in a new puppy along the way.
2: Uh, it would be an overstatement to say that I had made that choice. Um, these choices were made outside of by my children and my wife. Uh, so I have had uh, two dogs now inflicted <laughs> on me in lockdown. It's uh, so not to say I'm an unwilling uh, dog owner, but yes, it's... it's Gosh, there's a lot of mess, let's say.
1: We'll wait to see if we hear from them as well. We had your kids on last time, yeah, didn't we, we did. in the background? So yeah, yeah. we'll see if we get some yeah, little well, barks in the background. Thankfully,
2: they're back at school. It's a shame I can't stick the dogs in some kind of school for the day, but yeah, we'll see how we get on.
1: Oh, so I suppose, as Tony said, we spoke last September 2020. I mean, since then, crikey, we've seen two further lockdowns, end of Brexit transition. A really successful vaccination programme in Britain, which in actual fact we did cover many of those items in the call that we had, sort of back in September. For you, looking at the UK economy now, what's changed since September 2020
2: then? Gosh, Claire, not a small question <laughs> to open up. Yeah, not much yeah, has changed, exactly. has it? We've you know? only got a short
1: time. <laughs> yeah, so.
2: well, you no, know, it's 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 you're right that you're right there. I mean it's so you know, right to allude to that successful uh, vaccination campaign is really, you know, so important in the UK's current economic trajectory. Uh, And if you look at sort of what people call high frequency data points, so things like restaurant bookings, um, public transport usage, you know, stuff like that, you're seeing a really very sharp pickup in activity. And, you know, as we start to kind of blink back into the into the sunlight and into the beer gardens. Retail sales, uh, you are seeing, uh, you know, already are back to their kind of pre-COVID levels. Now, the mix between online and offline is still very different, pointing to how life remains, you know, very different to how it was pre-COVID. But it's amazing how much more resilience we've got just because of that ability uh, to shop online. I mean, on the other side, we still don't know too much about the kind of the whole blown in the economy by this, this pandemic. Usually we'd look at the unemployment rate. Um, As a simple kind of shorthand for the damage done. Um, but that's very difficult this time, because obviously the furlough scheme is sort of covering up the extent that the jobs market has changed and all of those kind of things. And so open questions really are, you know, how many jobs have disappeared? thanks to this kind of digital leap forward we've all taken. And is that digital leap forward permanent or are we going to sort of, you know, retreat? Are we going to all desperately try and escape this digital prison uh, as soon as we're allowed to and sort of take a step back? Or or are some of the the changes kind of permanent? On balance, I think, you know, it's a positive story. We're seeing, you know, a big reopening kind of boom happening around the world and the UK is included in that.
0: Yeah, thanks, Will. Yeah, thanks, Will. I I mean, looking at, uh, taking that a step further then, looking at the perhaps recent reaction to the easing of lockdown restrictions. What do you think that tells us more in, in more general terms about the sort of economic recovery that, that we will see, that we're seeing and hopefully will continue to unfold?
2: Yeah, Tony, I mean, I think the big story as we look forward um, to your exact point, really, is, is about this um, kind of pent-up consumer spending story. So, you know, what we found in this crisis is that, you know, consumers have saved high proportion um, or a large proportion of, uh, of their earnings. Um now that's sort of that. That's not uncommon. Some of it's not uncommon with you know previous recessions. What you tend to find is precautionary savings build up as you enter kind of economically more troubling times, and that's natural, isn't it? As we feel a bit more nervous about our job prospects and so on, we tend to save more of our income as a sort of more of a buffer. And actually, that has a in most recessions that has a a worsening effect. There's something called the paradox of thrift, which means if everyone saves together, then demand dries up and the economy worsens. People lose their jobs and they save more, and you get this kind of spiral. So so there's a sort of there's an element which is normal. However, there's an element in this crisis which is different, and that's the there have been restricted spending opportunities. Uh, you know, so we haven't been able to go out to restaurants, and we haven't been able to go on holidays, and those kind of things. So savings have also accrued because of that. Now, the interesting thing I think here is really about how those savings are distributed amongst different types of earners. So in the US, for instance, this huge build-up of savings is quite evenly distributed across uh, across earners. Um, In the UK, however, we found that the excess savings have accrued much more to the higher earners. Now, that has implications for how that's spent, if you think about it, because the higher up the income segment you go, segments you go, you tend to find that... higher earners tend to save more of their post-tax income. That, that's mainly because they can. That's you know, the But also you find that more of that, uh, the money that is spent tends to go on services versus the lower income segments where more goes on goods um, and more is spent full stop. So the more evenly distributed it is, the more you tend to find that more of it is spent. Um, so this is the big open sort of question at the moment is how much of this pent up savings is going to be spent. The other thing just to sort of rabbit on really boringly uh, <laughs> about, you know, this, this, this is a really interesting thing, I think, to me mainly. But there was a study, and I think we might have talked about this last time, but there was a study by the IMF which looked at every, you know, the recovery from every pandemic since the Black yeah. Death.
1: that's it. Yeah, you did mention it. You yeah.
2: may, you, you may recognise this. And, and they said, they basically showed statistically that there is a huge aftermath, that growth and in inflation is lower for decades afterwards, on average, post-pandemics. And part of this is because consumers feel the need to save more of their post-tax earnings. That very vivid rainy day changes people's spending saving habits a little bit. Now, is that going to be the case this time around? We just don't know, to be honest. I mean, I would say that this pandemic has been and the response has been incredibly different. Uh, to the past. Um, you know, the healthcare response, you know, I mean, the messenger RNA technology, vaccine technology, You basically had a vaccine in a weekend, and you're already deep into the vaccination code. The other thing that's very different is the policy response, you know, governments around the world have responded in a way they've never done before. So it, it is a very, uh, it's an interesting outlook. And I think that's pent up saving stories is central.
1: So Linking into that, certainly Tony and I, when we reflect back to us in September, when we had the last conversations, at that time, we were so busy helping the brokers with the housing market because it was so buoyant. In regards to that, you know, since then, we've had stamp duty extended again, the extension of the furlough scheme again, and the introduction of the mortgage guarantee scheme what impact do you think that's having? Is that going to make a difference going forward? Are we going to still see these sort of pent up demands and th- this busyness that we've got?
2: It's a, it's a great question, Claire. I and mean, I think, you know, what you can certainly say is that the sort of incoming data seems to point to the idea that uh, certainly the stamp duty story has kind of supercharged uh, the property market in the short term. Now, how long that will carry on for? You know, there is a feeling that a lot of the activity is kind of trying to Squeeze in before that um, that 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 um, uh, that scheme finishes. Um, so you know you could see a, a bit of a, a bit of a drop off. But you know it's interesting because I mean this crisis seems to have created a real urge to relocate. Um, there's a number of aspects you know one people have sort of you know very clearly wanting more space, and also the kind of working arrangements the greater flexibility that may endure uh, in in many people 's working agreement uh, arrangements is allowing that kind of search for space outside of uh, outside of city centers so that that is creating quite a sort of a few demand supply kind of chokes in some ways um, supply is not quite meeting demand in some areas and others, and that 's creating some some quite amazing price stories. You know, the thing I would say, just on the, I'm a Londoner, so maybe I'm biased here, but I would say that, you know, trends towards urbanisation have endured from the sack of Rome all the way through world wars and everything in between. Um, So I would say that, you know, we want to be wary of writing off cities um, altogether for too long. I do think that these are, uh, you know, very important economically and societally um, so I think that's one thing that I would sort of you know wouldn't extrapolate too much this sort of you know the idea that cities are going to be these bare wastelands and suburbia and the countryside is going to be the place to be. Just trying to stretch that a little bit further I think the unprecedented
0: levels of, as you said of home movers and new house purchases it's leaving there's not much property supply for the demand if you look at it at the moment and but then if you flip that round and you think about what we just mentioned there about unemployment levels, that the number of people that are in employment has fallen, unemployment has risen. It's almost like it's an artificial crest in some ways that we're sort of running at the moment. And when it does finally come to an end, perhaps at, you know, at the end of September, we've got all these, you know, we still have this stamp duty holiday. Um, once that's built in with furlough ending, and, and do, you, do you think then, even though we, we may have all this money that you talk about, do you think then we're likely to see something in the autumn and winter which is is going to be a little curveball from from the right coming coming our way?
2: Mm, I mean, uh, yeah, Tony. I mean, there's a sort of you know, you paint a plausible scenario, um, so so it could, and I think that's you know, something to be aware of, but. In a way, like the policy measures we've seen from the government and and the UK government, remember that they're not alone in sort of acting with this kind of this incredible muscularity that we've seen in this crisis. It's really been about bridging, you know, providing a bridge to a world post pandemic um, because they have made the judgment that the sort of, you know, the health considerations and everything uh, required uh, certain Mandated measures in the economy, so shutting down stuff and you know restricting movement and so on, um, and so they are trying to provide the bridge to the other side. Now, like we said, the economy could conceivably quite be quite different on the other side, um, and the nature and number of jobs available could be different. So we don't know what the natural level of unemployment is. Yeah. Yeah. So yes, sorry, go on. Yeah, and I'm just
0: going to sort of interject. I think to, to sort of make my point a little bit further, it's sort of I think what I'm seeing on the ground is. You know we've we've got all this fantastic support as you described, but yet on the ground, when when you look at you know various towns and and cities around the country, we're seeing you know shops closing, small shops especially aren't, don't seem to be able to make it through. Perhaps with the level of support that that they haven't received, you know that it's been very rich in some areas for employed people and some you know certain kinds of of self employment, but others have had very little support, and and as such. Because we've had it for, you know, 12 months. You know, it's gone on for that period of time. They've closed and they're not able to make a living. So I think personally, on my mind, I'm thinking, will we see more of that? And will that then have a knock-on effect? So,
2: yeah, I mean, I think, Tony, the, 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 it's a, this is, a, this is a, the key of sort of many of the challenges for policymakers at the moment. Because if you think about it, one of the things you want your economy to evolve with, you know, the evolution of global technology. So, you know, generally you're finding this move towards efficiency. So economies are always changing. They're always changing in terms of the type of companies that are prospering, the types of services that, you know, us three are demanding, how we demand those services. And that is creating all the time, um, it's changing the job market subtly. Now, what you can find, you can get leaps forward like we've had, and that can materially change the, the economy in a in a jump. Now, in the past, you know, you you call these kind of big leaps forward industrial revolutions, and they are turmoil. You know, I mean, they are they are great for the economy in the long run because they you know dramatically increase productivity and efficiency and so on. But they are very very complicated to live through because, like I say, jobs and companies are being destroyed and created in other corners of the economy. Now, the second part is important: is that generally you find that there is an offset. It doesn't often come at the same time, but the bridge is about how to policymakers to get people from one side to the other and how to make sure that you know and this is one of the big challenges is that you can find vast segments of society suddenly their skills are irrelevant because the economy has moved on and so as a government as a state you have to find a way to train people to make them available into the new uh, industry wherever that may be it be app design or something you know far beyond our imagination now and I think that's the complication with the story you're talking about now what we've got in a way is policymakers have made a commitment to support the economy to whatever extent they can um, until we get to that kind of that other side of the pandemic, which is you know it, it's kind of you know it's not necessarily fast approaching, but it's something that we've got to continually you know start to prepare for. Now, with regards to the property market specifically, as you know, we, we discussed this before. You know, we don't think that the last few decades of house price rises are a blueprint for the decades ahead. They are exceptional in the context of history, not just in the UK, but in any country you look at in terms of residential property prices. We should expect something more akin to kind of inflation-ish property price rises as demand and supply are a little bit more closely matched going forward. Um, and that would be my thing. I'd I hesitate to predict some sort of crash or cliff uh, coming um, because I think the economy is kind of adapting and you know we've got to see what comes. But so I, I don't think that should be our central case scenario. It should be just something we, we think about a little bit, but I don't think it's necessarily, you know, the, the, the central case scenario at the moment, if that makes sense.
0: Yeah, re- re- it does. Yeah, really, really well described. Uh, and, and it does give a more, more broader perspective, I think, on what's happening. How do you think then, just, just taking that further, how do you think the UK compares to the rest of the world then around this, when you're looking at the economies, you, you know, in America, in, in South America, in the Far East?
2: So it's a really interesting question again. And I think, you know, there's a lot, you know, Tony, in my mind, there's been, you know, in the absence of, um, for a long time, of sort of live sport, there's sort of, you know, the, many of us looked at some sort of, you know, country-level coronavirus derby, like who's doing better, who's doing worse, you know, who's the kind of sinners and saints at the state level. A lot of it, you know, you, you know for the proper kind of post-mortem on this, we're gonna need years still, before the evidence is in, because it'll take a long time to disentangle what was luck and what was actually design. So for instance, the UK, it majors in a lot of the sectors that have been worse affected by this crisis. So the UK experienced one of the worst downturns um, in the second quarter of last year of any country in the world. Um, then again, the UK, you know, and there was, there was all sorts of kind of media stories about what had gone wrong and what had, you know, criticism of policymakers. Uh, you fast forward 12 months and now the UK is being lauded for its very successful vaccination campaign. Now, how much of that is due to you know, particular actions of the state versus pre-existing institutional structures like the NHS? You know, again, we're going to need a bit of time to, time to do that. What I would say is that very few countries have managed to replicate the incredible sort of technocratic success uh, of East Asia. Um, You know, so particularly, I mean, Korea, Taiwan are the two countries that people um, have really held up as suffering, you know, really very few deaths and really managing to keep it incredibly contained. Um, You know, economically speaking, just sort of at a broader point, I think the big story in the world is always the U.S. economy and the U.S. is going through like a policy experiment, a very, very extreme policy experiment at the moment, which is really about, you know, usually what you tend to find in most economic cycles is, you know, when consumers are, you know, the private sector is weak, you know, consumers or businesses are spending is weak, the government steps in. Um, And as, you know, the private sector starts to recover, the government sort of pairs back. What's happening at the moment is actually kind of Government and private sector acting together, really pushing, really hard, um, and the Biden administration is um, is pushing, you know, very hard with more, you know, support down this road. So it's interesting, you know, we're going to see, you know, it's going to have results of some sort, um, but it is a it's a policy experiment, so that's something that we're all watching quite closely.
1: That links c- quite nicely in with. I'm hearing a lot of people talking about inflation and how that's affecting certainly the UK. But also we know that some of those countries that have struggled more uh, containing the pandemic are having troubles with inflation, aren't they? Inflation's very high. Can you just sort of explain what you think that's going to, you know, what we need to be worried about? What do we need to be concerned about and look out for here in the UK?
2: Well, I mean, I think, Claire, you know, the first point to make is that for several decades around the world, inflation has been falling. Um, now there's been loads of sort of potential explanations as to why, but there's no single compelling answer that explains all disinflation or indeed inflation in the past. So it's, 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 it's a matter of kind of jostling, uh, competing explanations to try and explain as much as possible rather than, you know, one kind of, this is why it happens. You know, and if you think about, I tend to think about this kind of somewhat simplistically, you can think about, you know, think about the economy like a car. Um, like all cars, the economy has like a perfect speed of travel where you're, you know, you're neither stalling nor doing damage to the engine uh, by going too fast. Now, in the economy terms, you know, driving too fast, uh, you know, you get steam coming out of the bonnet. The steam coming out of the bonnet, that's inflation. So it's a sign you're running your engine too hot kind of thing. Now, you know, going too slow, you stall, that's a recession. Now, the problem for central bankers and us is that unlike a car we don't know what the optimal speed of travel is and it's always changing so the size of the engine to mangle the analogy further is it, kind of always changing underneath the bonnet and you don't know what it is so the central bankers are trying to get it to travel at the right speed so that you don't get masses of inflation but they're flying pretty blind now at the moment what you would say is that you know until you know to the, to that early point until we know the size of the hole in the punched by this pandemic, we don't really know too much about the sort of outlook for inflation. There are some speculating that, you know, there are some sort of seismic changes underneath the, you know, tectonic shifts in the global economy, which mean that the trends of disinflation of the last decade, few decades are going to reverse anyway, even without this crisis. Um, But keep an open mind. And, And the last point I'll make on this is that, you know, the Bank of England at the moment You know, and this is this is right. They express this kind of uncertainty statistically. So their the confidence intervals of their two year out inflation forecasts are twice as large as normal. So they have a one in three chance that you're gonna see inflation below zero in two years or above four (laughs) percent. It's quite a big
1: yeah, big span.
2: (laughs) More splinters, more splinters on my palms. Sorry about
0: that, but yeah. And, and just to splinter that a bit further then, and, and perhaps you could use your crystal ball for this, <laughs> yeah. um, Will, and, and get... Squinting well, <laughs> already. How would you foresee interest rates changing going forward? What
2: would your view yes, on that? Be? crystal ball gazing it is. No, So, so I mean, I think at the moment, you know, the, the, the central case scenario should be inflation. interest rates will remain low for the foreseeable future the central bankers have also turned around and said and many of them around the world the US in particular has turned around and said look you know we're comfortable seeing a bit of inflation we're not going to respond immediately um, because what you are seeing at the moment is an art, sort of an artificial pick up in inflation data which is more a function of kind of lapping last year's plunge in inflation um, therefore you sort of just arithmetically have higher inflation for a little bit you know so the central bankers also they're going to look through this and sort of you know they're going to be waiting that they're trying to run the economy a bit hot so at the moment that should be your your central case scenario but you know beyond the sort of five-year time frame or three five-year time frame remember that you know there is the potential that this crisis is a kind of turning point in the inflation story therefore we could be going back towards you know higher interest rates conceivably
1: thank you will
2: thank you will appreciate your time that was will
0: hobbs chief investment officer at barclays wealth and investments And if you want to hear more from Will, you can listen to his podcast, Word on the Street, where experts help ordinary investors make sense of how news and events impact financial markets.
1: If there's a subject that you'd like us to explore, then please email us at mortgageinsider at acast.com.
0: And please do subscribe so you don't miss an episode. I'm Tony Rimmer.
1: And I'm Claire McPhail. Thanks for listening.